the Horse and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Rim, Horse and Hound magazine editor. I hope everyone is managing to get out and enjoy their horses now that the lockdown is easing slightly. We're kicking off our podcast today by chatting to Horse and Hound features editor Martha about a very special piece in this week's magazine, as well as catching up with the news team about the latest developments as competitions start to return. Also, our showing editor Alex Robinson talks to Sally McMillan, owner of the reigning Hoy's Cuddy Supreme in Hand champion, Heron's Mill Tiger Lily. Sally talks to us about their big day at the Royal Welsh Show last year and what makes Lily such a special pony. I think that's just her. I mean, I could walk out into the field now to see her and she's there (laughs) in your face. Oh, me, me, me. And that's just the way she is. It's almost like she was born to perform. Finally, vet Ricky Farr of Farr and Percy Equine will be giving us the lowdown on worming, an all-important part of all horses' routine healthcare. Our biggest problem has been over the last 50 years, we've been sporadically using wormers like they're going out of fashion. Blanket treating with wormers is poor management and it's a waste of money. Some really great advice coming up later in the podcast from Vet Ricky Farr. So, shorten your reins and let's get started. To kick off this week's podcast, I'm speaking to Horse and Hounds feature editor Martha Terry. Over the past few weeks, Martha has been responsible for bringing together an extraordinary exclusive feature, which is in today's magazine, in which the Queen chooses her favourite horses. Hello, Martha. Hi, Fifa. Martha, can you tell us how this amazing feature came about and how we got it in Horse and Hound? Yeah, it's so exciting to have this feature all about the Queen's horses. Um, Basically, at the start of lockdown, we were looking at ways that we could provide something really uplifting. um, And the Queen is always a big morale boost, especially at a troublesome time. And so we thought we'd do something about her horses. And I was going to write it. And I um, planned to speak to a few people who knew the uh, horses and ponies and see if we could get some colour into it. So I texted um, the Queen's bloodstock advisor, John Warren, and her groom at Windsor, Terry Pendry, to get some quotes. John didn't reply, but Terry did within minutes to say he was about to go riding with the Queen and he knew all the horses and ponies. And But sorry, um, this is against protocol, so he can't talk about them, which was really tantalising. Anyway, I sort of thought no more of it and tried to pull together some other features when about three weeks ago, John Warren called me and said, completely out of the blue, um, the Queen has chosen her five racehorses and what more did we want to know about them? And I tried to play it really cool, but I was so excited and then said, um, okay, could you tell us a bit more about her relationships with them and why she'd pick them? And lo and behold, he produced a, a lovely feature all about them, why she'd chosen them. And it was really exciting. And I thought no more of it until a week ago, I got a lovely call from Terry Pendry, again, completely out of the blue while I was trying to homeschool my children saying, He'd done his bit and he had a belt of a front cover photo and a few other unpublished photos of Her Majesty's private horses. So although we were completely improvising at that stage, I said, thank you very much. That's absolutely wonderful. And um, now we have a lovely five page article on the Queen's favourite horses that she has chosen for us to know about. And what's absolutely outstanding about this feature and so rare is that this is a very private reflection by such a public figure. We're not just reading about famous horses in this article, but about horses the Queen just likes to ride. Um, for example, she mentions Sanction, who's the last homebred horse she rode before she moved on to native ponies. And he's the horse who's our cover star this week, isn't he? That's right. That's what I love about this feature too. It's a bit like we've got a snapshot into the Queen's own family album with you know, the ponies, the horses she loves, not just the well-known racehorses. 
Um, Sancton was a favourite riding horse of the Queen's. Um, it's really, it's got a lovely bright eye. It's a 16-1 bay. I think it's a three-quarter bred. And it was the last horse that the Queen rode before she switched to ponies. Um, by then she was well into her 80s. And um, Terry says that the pair had a lovely telepathic bond. The horse seemed to know what the Queen wanted to do and where she wanted to go. Um, and it was quite nice. I said to Terry, the horse doesn't stand very square. And he said, oh, that was just sanction all over. And he said it so lovingly. It was really sweet. That's amazing because I think everybody who rides horses can relate to finding that horse of a lifetime who you really have that special bond and relationship with. And it's so lovely to think of our monarch having that with a horse and that bringing her so much joy. And that picture, which is on our cover, is not the only picture in the feature, which is one that's never been seen before by the public, is it? There are some others, too. That's right. That picture and then there's one inside taken on the same day um, were taken as a private shoot to celebrate the Golden Jubilee. Um, And so they were special and private to the Queen. There's also a really sweet one of the Queen standing almost in a flower bed. It's in a wildflower garden um, with one of her favourite fell ponies, this beautiful, shining black pony called Emma, um, who she selected. And that was just taken by Terry Pendry on his mobile phone. It's just a private snap and we've got access to it. And it's really, really lovely. It's amazing to think of that, you know, the, the Queen's groom taking a snap of her standing in a flower bed with a pony like any of the rest of us might do. And the other thing which is really striking reading through this feature is the Queen's breadth of knowledge in the horse world. You know, she knows about eventing, she knows about showing native ponies, she knows about racehorses. And, you know, I think a lot of our staff at Horse and Hound have have a breadth of knowledge across the horse world. But I just don't think any of us can can boast that sort of width of, um, of experience and knowledge in so many different areas. Absolutely. Terry refers to the Queen as a living encyclopedia, and I think that's absolutely true. She's incredibly knowledgeable and so interested. She's just fascinated by the whole horse world. And actually, I had a, a conversation with our former editor, Michael Clayton, who remembers the Queen visiting the magazine in the late 70s. And he'd set up all sorts of posters and covers to show the Queen as a sort of exhibition. And she'd see certain horses and ask the sire. And before Michael could kind of rack his brain, she'd have already told him the answer because she knew. And in this feature this, out this week, um, there's an amazing indicator of her knowledge and passion for horses because she goes to visit Dutel, this is back in the 50s, um, who will go on to win several top class races, but at this stage he hasn't even raced. And the trainer pulls out what he believes is Dutel, but the Queen, who bred the horse and knew the horse as a foal, spotted that, that he'd accidentally been switched with another horse, another one of her own homebreds. So luckily they'd yet to run, so disaster was avoided, but that was all thanks to her sharp eye that she noticed. It's extraordinary that she she has that incredible memory when she has so much going on and, and a real sharp eye for a horse. And just lovely, as I said earlier, to think of the Queen getting so much pleasure from her horses through the years and, and the fact she's still riding now when she's in her 90s. There were pictures published just last week of her coming out of lockdown a little bit and, and having her first ride since the start of the, the coronavirus crisis, which is wonderful to see and something I think we can all relate to. Absolutely. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Martha. And I know that our readers are going to enjoy that feature so much in this week's magazine. Well done for all your hard work on it. <laughs> Thank you. Hope you enjoy it. So I'm speaking now to Horse and Hound's news editor, Eleanor Jones, and our senior news writer, Lucy Elder, 
to catch up about developments as we come out of lockdown and sports starts to restart. Hi, Lucy and Eleanor. How's it going? Hello. Hi. Lucy, what have we found out this week about the return of affiliated eventing? So um, I can't actually believe quite how much has has moved on, really, since we were talking last week when uh, I'd been writing about surveys and sort of initial thoughts from various people involved in the sport about uh, looking at whether there was going to be a demand for for any eventing this year and if so what demand that was going to be and since that time it's it's progressed quite a bit really we've now got a a hopeful start date of when eventing is going to be back in albeit a, a sort of modified form and that's been put on the weekend of the 4th of July it's quite exciting um and I've been speaking to a fair few people this week in terms of organisers and various others, uh, just to find out a bit more about how it's going to work. And of course, there's going to be changes and sort of challenges that go with that um, in terms of complying with social distancing and uh, government guidance. Um, but it is it is sounding quite hopeful, and I'm touching wood when I'm saying that. But um, but it's quite exciting that there will be some proper events, albeit in, an, in the new normal, hopefully within a few weeks. And we know that British Eventing has been in a wrangle with its insurers over entry fees from those fixtures which were cancelled at the start of lockdown. So the big question, well, one of the big questions with sport coming back is how are entries and refunds going to work when eventing returns? And there's been some news on that too, hasn't there? Yes, that's that is true. Um, for now, British Venting in their in their latest update to members put out a workaround specifically should an event be cancelled for COVID lockdown reasons, and the wrangle with the insurers isn't sorted as to whether or not that's covered. So at the moment, they've they've got an idea of of how it might work, um, and that plan is for a pandemic refund policy, which is. Effectively, where the organisers and competitors are sharing the risk, um, the amount refunded by an organiser will be a minimum of they've put it at thirty percent of the entry fee plus VAT, and that's up to three days ahead of the start date. Um, it's also it's going to be worth um, checking each event's own policy as they could well vary as to how much they're going to offer back. But that's that's the starting point. And in terms of the abandonment insurance question that's still ongoing I'm yeah still keeping keeping track on that yeah so there's a question still there about what happens to those entry fees Mm. which are which are tied up in that wrangle from the start of the lockdown and going forward will the competitors be paying the abandonment insurance in the normal way and what will happen if an event cancels for a non-coronavirus reason such as you know raining all week and the ground being too wet to run well yes according to British Eventing's latest update, um, that is still in place. And I actually, I did get in touch with them this week to double check that because I thought that's going to be something that people are going to want to know about. Um, and abandonment premium is still payable um, on entries and uh, in instance of cancellation for other reasons which should be covered by the policies. Yeah, so we carry on paying the abandonment premium, which which covers events for non-coronavirus reasons. And then there's this special pandemic policy that's been put in place where organisers and riders share the risk should we go back into lockdown. Yeah, that's my understanding. Yeah, I'm glad we're all on the same page and we've all, all understood that correctly. Um, and hopefully riders can enter events sort of with clarity of knowing what their risk is and owners. And, and Lucy, tell us which events look like being the first ones on the restart calendar if things do kick off that first weekend in July. 
So um, I believe this is all being firmed up imminently for the first couple of weeks and months back. Um, But the ones I definitely know about uh, on the first week back will be Barbary uh, in Wiltshire on 4th and 5th of July. And actually, I spoke to Alec Lahore this week, um, who is the organiser, and the team at Musketeer are all super busy in planning. He's also finished the cross-country courses when I spoke to him, and he spoke to me about how he's designed those as to be more of a an early season course. I think the example he gave is that they're more sort of more of a course he had designed for maybe Sirencester than Burnham Market seven weeks later when horses have had a run and you know sort of seven weeks of the season further on. Um but they're very much still proper courses and well within the the rules and regulations of dimensions and things, but possibly slightly on the short side. Um, other events that are, fingers crossed, going ahead that weekend, we've got Buckminster uncancelled, which is great news in Lincolnshire with some grassroots level classes. Um, and we've also got Ask up in Yorkshire. So even just from those three I know about, that sounds hopefully quite a good starting point in terms of geographical spread as well. So Yeah, fingers crossed those events can can get off the ground. Mm. And as you say, uh, the uncancellation of Buckminster, I feel, might be a uh, might be somewhat symptomatic of this season. I was just talking to a, to a writer who writes a roundup page for us and I was saying, I think I'm going to make a you know an updatable document online that I can just keep rolling as things change because I feel like if I email you every time something changes and I want you to do, cover different events, all I'm going to spend my day doing is emailing you. <laughs> yeah. And, and Lucy, an interesting development. We don't have any Event Rider Masters series this year apart from their simulated competitions, but there's no real Event Rider Masters on the ground as such. But you wrote in your story this week that actually the expertise of the ERM team is in demand at the moment. Tell us a little more about that. Yeah, so I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, and I rang Paul Tapner this week to ask for his thoughts as someone that is really involved in the sport and a badminton winner. And um, and I found this out, which was quite exciting. Um, so, of course, it's really sad that we're not going to see any um, of the ERM series uh, other than the virtual events this year. But he told me that his phone has been ringing super hot with organisers looking at how they can possibly bring their event to those who can't be there and of course that's a area that the ERM has got quite a lot of knowledge in and digital and potentially um live streaming and things but I mean of course this all depends on on what the restrictions are and individual organizers but I think it's still really exciting to hear that those those sorts of conversations are are happening yeah and I think there'll be some great technological solutions this summer to try and bring competitions to a wider audience for people as you say who can't be on the ground Eleanor, you've you've been working on a story this week about a British horse society microsite that's launched. Tell us a bit about that. Um, well, the idea is that they, they just want to hear feedback and ideas from riders. The BHS Chief Executive James Hicks said, uh, we obviously understand that we don't have all the best ideas, so we want to hear as much as possible from people about what they think should be Uh, taken into consideration as lockdown restrictions ease which is brilliant because he said before if they had been able to have uh, input more upstream he called it then they might have been able to put our case across better so it sounds really exciting great idea and I thought it was fascinating sort of on that note about having influence upstream that um, in, in the interview, they, the BHS spoke about the fact that they had learned more about how government system operates through this time and how to influence them. Tell us a bit about, about what, what you learned about that in the story. So he was saying that, you know, say Boris Johnson makes his announcement and then 
obviously everyone wants to know straight away well how does that affect me and but of course it takes a while for the for the more detailed guidance to come out anyway and then for us to understand how it applies to our world so obviously we, we can't expect the prime minister to be, to, to be talking about say indoor schools <laughs> as he makes his announcement but of course there are ways where there will be a broad statement and everyone has to go well where do I fit within that and it takes a while um, but it was really interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting that um, sort of the whole, where the horse world and government interact, there's a, a a bit of an interface there and how those things play together. And this survey, which is going to be on this BHS microsite, who is it aimed at? Who should be filling it in? Everyone, uh, really, which is great because it's it's any everyone who rides, cares for horses, whether you earn your living uh, in the sport or in the industry or whether you do it yourself or compete, it's brilliant. They want to hear from everyone and not just their members. So the BHS really reaching out to, to all the corners of the equine world there to try and understand what's important to them as we navigate through this tricky time. Yeah. And Lucy, just coming back to you again, moving away from eventing into a different area of competition, there's some quite exciting news in the top flight dressage world this week, isn't there? Yes, this uh, landed in our inboxes, I think, uh, over the weekend or certainly Monday morning. Um, and there's some quite interesting hopefully exciting news about uh online grand prix between uh dutch and british riders so this came from dame rawlins of dressage at hickstead and the rotterdam organizer patrick van der meer got the idea to have a sort of a sort of hybrid virtual <laughs> competition if that makes sense where riders in britain will be riding their tests at hickstead and riders in, in netherlands will be riding theirs at rostam i think i've got that right uh, up to sort of 20 combinations and it'll be live streamed and there'll be online judging but there'll also be uh, top judges marking giving commentary on it as well uh, we haven't got a date yet and we haven't got rider lists yet but there's some sort of fairly big names of put their sort of support behind it so I think hopefully that'll be quite exciting for for fans to watch be able to get a chance to see some of their favorite uh combinations out doing what they what they do best again and also Dane said as well that the idea is to hopefully give some of those combinations a bit of a a bit of a chance to have a taste of competition arena again even though it's going to be you know very different but yeah fun to watch I hope as you say, it's such an interesting hybrid idea where mm. riders are riding in a sort of genuine competition in their own countries, obviously obeying social distancing and whatever the, the guidelines are in their own nation at that moment. Yeah. But then they're also in a sort of virtual, simula not simulated, but a virtual competition against riders in a whole different part of the world. It feels That feels like a fascinating sort of combination of, um, of, of the real and the unreal almost. Absolutely. And as you were saying just a bit earlier about um, use of technology and how innovative people are being with it and organisers and everyone, I think that this is sort of almost that to, to a T really in how it can work. Well, thank you both very much, Lucy and Eleanor. It's been good to catch up with you and, and find out what's happening. Thank you. Thanks. Hello, my name is Alex Robinson and I'm the showing editor at Horse and How magazine. Welcome to this week's guest interview. This week I'm going to be chatting with Sally McMillan who is a riding pony breeder and she's also the owner of the reigning Hoys Cuddy Supreme in Hand Champion Heron's Mill Tiger Lily. Lily is handled by Matt McGiven and she's produced by Sarah Baker of the Copy Push Stud. The team gained their ticket to the big final at the Royal Welsh Show last July. I managed to have a quick catch up with Sally via FaceTime to chat about her ponies and how she's getting on in lockdown. So here's my chat with Sally McMillan. 
So hi Sally, thanks for joining us today. Hi, hi Alex. How are you getting on in lockdown and um, how does it feel with, with no shows to go to? Oh, it's really strange. Um, I'm working from home mm. at the moment, as are obviously a lot of people. Um, I suppose there are positives in that I can look out the window and see the ponies mm. in the fields and I have a mare that's due to foal at the moment, so it's quite handy to be on site rather yeah. than in the office. But it's, really, it's just strange and strange with there being no shows and it's just really odd. Mm. So yeah. for people who might not know, um, can you just give us a quick rundown of, of your setup? So where are you based in Pembrokeshire and how many ponies have you got on at the minute? I'm based near Saundersfoot in Pembrokeshire, which is um, like a, mm -hmm. a small sort of seaside area. So I'm, I'm close to the, to the beaches, which is nice. We've got 20 acres here at home, um, a small holding, and I, I rent a further 20 acres, just, just literally a mile up the lane, so, which is quite handy. So, so yeah, it's nice having every, everybody on site. Lovely. And, and how many ponies uh, have you got at the minute? How, uh, what are your numbers? I don't, I don't breed many. I think I've got around 10 at the moment, which range from sort of youngsters like Lily to, um, to a couple of oldies that, that have been mm -hmm. here a long time. Um, and obviously brood mares and, and things in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> Lily, uh, as you know her at home, uh, so she's out of your mare, Copy Bush, Eye of the Tiger, uh, by the stallion Chaikus Troubadour. So how did you come to, to get Tiger and Following on from this, how did you come to uh, choose the stallion? I was really lucky in that my friend Wendy Campbell that mm -hmm. breeds the Hollyland ponies, she lives probably about eight miles away. Her and her daughter bought Tiger, mm -hmm. the, the mare, um, as a yearling from the Copybush stud. Um, and then the Copybush stud itself is only five miles away from me. Um, and it's just a line that I'd always loved. Um, Tiger is a full sister to Copybush catchphrase, who previously won the, the Cuddy equivalent back in 1994. Uh -huh. um, and I've always loved him. So I, I just love the breeding, love the damn mm. line. Um, and I had the opportunity, because Wendy was kind enough to, to lend me the mare for a 2009 foal. I borrowed her again um, for Lily and, and then subsequently bought the mare. So she's here with me. Yeah. So Lily, she was actually unshown until last year and uh, she ended up winning a ticket at the Royal Welsh last July, as I said. Uh, can you just take us up or tell us about her show season up until she actually gained her ticket? Because I believe it was only a third ever outing. Yeah, she, um, it was really strange. She, she'd all, always had this sort of look at me quality and I, I thought <laughs> I, I really wanted to, to let her have um, a few outings in the ring, not many, because I don't like them to be overshown, <laughs> especially when they're youngsters. And it was just, the, the plan was for her to just have a couple of outings or, or a handful of outings. When I actually went to see Sarah, I said, uh, to discuss it, I said, oh, it would be nice if we could Aimer at a couple of shows that ha that hold Cuddy qualifiers, uh -huh. and I felt really stupid at the time because I just thought, <laughs> you know, there's no way on earth that, that she'd uh, qualify or anything. But it, it was just, you know, so we we aimed at the Royal Welsh because that's our local big show, and she just had a couple of sort of practice outings before um, the Royal Welsh, uh -huh. um, and that was her <laughs> preparation really. And uh, th that win at the Royal Welsh on, on home ground, that must have been absolutely incredible. Can you just take me through, through your show? Um, so she started off by winning the Riding Pony Breeding title and then obviously went through the card to take the ticket. Just, just kind of take us through. What, what was that like for you as a breeder? 
Well, she went, um, she, she competed in the riding pony breeding classes on the yeah. Tuesday. And like, I mean, I, I've been going to the Royal Welsh show since, since I was a, a child. And I've always, <laughs> the thing I would have loved to, or I wanted to, to win would be the riding pony breeding championship. So just to win that, I was like thrilled, you can imagine. And I hadn't really even thought about the cuddy at that point. And I think <laughs> Judge Martin Jones spoke to us after the class because he really liked her. And, and he said, oh, good luck for the cuddy. And I just thought, oh, good great. <laughs> We've got to come back now on Thursday. <laughs> And, and do that so it was just really strange on on the Thursday it was absolutely boiling hot it was a really mm. really hot day and the team had, had got her up there I was watching by the ring and she just walked into the ring and I thought god you know wow that's my pony and she, <laughs> she stood out um and I think from then it was just sort of a bit surreal I was just thrilled that she was she handled the atmosphere because it's a really electric mm. atmosphere in that main ring and you know there's obviously crowds of people watching and she just sort of dealt with everything so well I was just really you know I thought well if 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 nothing comes of it at least she's she sort of handled it and I'm, I was really proud of her so when the um the steward pulled her out to, to say that she <laughs> won then well I was just a complete mess <laughs> which is quite embarrassing but uh, yeah it was it was just unbelievable to be supreme in hand and then to realize that we'd also qualified for the the cuddy was just crazy mm-hmm. so obviously the ticket was one thing um but then to go on and and win the final um later that year so hoy's prep for for lily and the team obviously it's such a big show and it's kind of a funny time of year, October, um, to get the ponies looking um, right at that time of year. How, mm-hmm. how, how was preparation for Hoys for you guys? And did you have any expectations before heading, heading to the final? I had no expectations at all because she's the first Heronsville pony to even qualify for the Horse of the Year show. So, again, to me, it was just unbelievable that she'd, she'd qualified um preparation wise Sarah again Sarah put in so much work at home just to keep her ticking over to keep her happy because of course she'd never even been inside indoors or anything um to a show there was a a showing extravaganza locally that was held indoors as like a pre-hoys show and she went there and again she was just brilliant she um (laughs) she performed really well she she was champion of her section there and then went into the Supreme, which was full of ridden ponies. And, uh, you know, I think there were two or three in hand ponies. And she went Supreme of show there under about five judges. So like that, that day was a bit sort of crazy, but that was our hoys prep. And I was thinking, oh my God, you know, this, people seem to like this pony. <laughs> I suppose the, the poignant thing was that um, Sarah had won it 25 years mm-hmm. previously. And of course, Lily's mum was a full sister to Fraser that, that actually won in 94. And on the way up to the ring, she, she brought along the, the rug that Fraser was presented with back in 94. It was then called oh, the Creever. Um, so we, Lily went up to the ring with that rug <laughs> draped over her, which was like, we, we said that that was our lucky charm. And uh, just the atmosphere as well, it is such a big occasion for, for any pony. How, how did she take to the ring and did, did she really kind of thrive on that, um, that buzzy environment? She did. And I think that's, that's just her. She, 
she's just so I mean I could walk out into the field now to see her and she's there <laughs> in your face oh me 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 you know here I am and that's just the way she is and she just coped it's almost like she was I know they people say these things but she's just like born to perform sort of thing Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it, it's like she just she just loved it I think Matt and the team they they walked her up to the um top spec arena the night before just so that she could have a look around you, you have your slots don't you to to mm -hmm. go in but it's totally different doing it when it's half empty to when it's sort of full with people buzzing mm -hmm. around and she just coped unbelievably well with the whole thing she just wasn't phased at all in the stable she's she's just sort of quiet and lets you lets you get on with preparing her and then the minute she goes into the ring she sort of grows about three inches and just really shows herself so thank you so much for joining us today sally um yeah good luck with everything and and hopefully speak to you again in the future when lily is a flourishing ridden pony oh i hope so <laughs> thanks alex <laughs> no problem bye bye vet ricky farr from far and percy equine will be here for each and every episode of the horse and ham podcast with guidance and advice on various horse health topics, including in this episode, his best advice on worming, which is obviously a vital element of routine healthcare for horses. Oh, worming. There's a good one. Um, worming is one of those, again, minefields that everyone gets involved in. Everyone's got their own opinion. Um, every yard has their own opinion. Every yard owner has their own opinion. Um, if there's only one thing I could say about worming before going into it, it's test. Don't worm, test. It's nice and simple. There are plenty of tests out there that are available. Worm egg counts, definitely. Worm egg count, what we call reduction tests. So post-treatment, that checking that you have a reduction in the worm egg count. In addition to that, we also have a relatively new test that has been on the market not too long, which we can look for what we call encysted cyathostomes. So we're looking for markers giving us a quantitative idea of how many worms are embedded into the gut wall. And that's been something that we've never been able to assess. Worm egg counts are fantastic during the grazing season and utilising the right way can be a good indicator of worm burden but they're not the be-all and end-all. There is variability within worm egg counts. You can take one in the morning and take one in the afternoon and you can have a variation between them. So unless you're doing them really regularly, you may have some issues. However, as part of a structured worming program of testing, I think they're incredibly beneficial. That in conjunction with tapeworm testing, be it a saliva test or a blood test, if you combine those three together, in conjunction with utilising good pasture management, I think we can get worms under control. Our biggest problem has been over the last almost probably 50 years, we've been sporadically using wormers like they're going out of fashion. Um, I went through part of Pony Club and dosing every four to six weeks was the advised thing. Definitely not. We have to completely go away from that now. Um, we have to look at the data and the evidence out there. Um, every yard should be based as an individual case. Every horse realistically should be based as an individual case. And utilising your veterinary practice and the nurses within veterinary practices, because they have also the time and the experience and the expertise to give you that advice to structure a worming programme. Blanket treating with wormers is poor management, definitely. And it's a waste of money. 
In addition to that, we are also increasing the level of worm resistance that we have out there. All of our wormers have resistance, categorically. Um, there is nothing new within the within the, the drug market, so there's nothing that we can expect. And the vast majority of drugs take years to license, so don't expect anything just popping suddenly up. So it's our responsibility almost to go back to basics. Probably 50, 100, whatever years ago, horses were cross-grazing with cattle and sheep. Stocking densities were low. Yes, the way in which we keep horses today and that, um all on one big yard, loads of horses. We don't have time to poo pick. We just can buy a wormer for a fiver off the internet and dump it in. They're very poor ways to go. I think you need to get your veterinary practice involved. You need to get get them down, making sure that we're getting good weights for them, making sure we're dosing correctly. We're only treating the ones that are, are actually needed to be treated. There are lots of solutions out there. Um, no one case for all, no magic bullet, unfortunately. Um, but unless we all get on this same bandwagon, we're likely to see increased resistance. We like to have we have an issue within our area of uh, resistance to pinworms, so we get a lot of pinworm resistance. And again, a lot of that is just down to historic dosing of of anthelmintics or wormers sporadically for years. So I think we need to be proactive now as an industry, as horse owners, and as vets to actually get on top of this and that for future generations as well um, we need wormers that work at the moment we don't have them we need to stockpile them and wait and that's so when we do need them they're actually going to be efficacious thanks very much for that great advice from ricky on next week's podcast dress editor polly bryan will be talking to paralympic gold medalist natasha baker and Ricky will be back with more important veterinary advice discussing lameness, something that affects nearly every horse owner at some point. Looking forward to talking to you all then. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.